Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Umlink Energy Speaks Back, powered by Hong. My name is Paul Webb. I'm the founder of B2B Energy, and I'm your host. And weekly, I present to you experts from around the world. Welcome to episode 92, and I'm in the UK, where I meet with an energy expert who has dedicated his time to education and has developed vast amounts of knowledge from his days in the Merchant Navy. Our purpose, as always, is to provide a good understanding of energy management knowledge from around the world, which is available today for us to deliver savings that impact on our planet. On our journey of knowledge sharing, we would like to thank our sponsors, and they are Umlink, who are taking the confusion out of energy management, Arc Systems, renowned for their energy software, Clean Energy Revolution, for their knowledge and networking throughout LinkedIn, B2B Energy, for the 11-week energy program, Alexis Energy, for power management, led by Vision, who are an LED and a controls company, SignWatts for electronics and EV transition, Carbon Black Global for their waste to energy initiatives, Cinefix for their insulation coating, and SmartCore for their AC initiatives. And lastly, I'd like to thank our certificate partners, Esther Energy. Today's special guest is a true energy expert focusing on education in our sector. So without any further ado, I give you David McNeil. Good morning, David. How are you this morning? I'm fine, Paul. Hope you're all right, are you? Yes? Yes, very good. And we had a bit of banter this morning when you were saying about, you sent me a message this morning saying you was going for a run and going to get wet. And I'm thinking, wow, I didn't know David was a jogger. (laughs) I used to be. But the, it's a euphemism for a morning shower. <laughs> right. And then when when I uh, the penny dropped, as they say, <laughs> the penny dropped. So, David, um, I'm sure we're going to learn more about the, your your language regarding that and where that comes from mm. later on in the podcast. Um, but obviously, David, you and I have met via LinkedIn. We've never mm. met in person, but we've had some quite a few phone calls and chats and we often share the occasional text message and uh, we've created this little bit of a bond between us which i quite enjoy our our friendship actually and we're threatened one day that we will meet in person amazingly um so david for the benefit of our audience today can you give us some background to who is david and, and what's your origin story i suppose it probably starts in the far east that's where i was born when i left school i really had a I had a pretty firm idea about what I wanted to do for a living uh, so I, um, I I signed up for an apprenticeship with a major oil company and they took me on right. so, so they took me on as an engineering apprentice and I spent four years in an apprenticeship with them which was good I didn't I don't think I really realized or appreciated the value of what I'd done at the time. But it turned out, if you look at it now, uh, I completed two diplomas and a lot more, a lot more besides. 
and then on coming out of that i was then i was then awarded a contract to go to sea with them as a seagoing engineer on their on their fleet of oil tankers right as it was then and was that always the intention to to go to sea with them when you was doing the apprenticeship or or not oh that really was i think that's where i thought i was going to land and stay for the rest of my life right i I really thought then this is it i am here i've got this job i'm going to i'm going i'm going to move up in it i'm going to progress in it and um see where this takes me and that's exactly how i saw it Mm -hmm. but you you and i both know that you go through your life and things change your perspective alters your perspective changes your your position changes your your belief systems alter and all of a sudden you think hang on a minute maybe there's other goals i can i can aspire to uh the trigger for that i think was when was when the company flagged out and if you remember what happened if you remember what happened to the pno people recently mm-hmm. well that started with with people like us when the companies we work for went offshore deregistered all their ships from the city of london and put them into other places around the world and i got kicked out of the pension fund right and that's a trigger because all of a sudden you're thinking hang on a minute um i joined this this fleet i joined this company because i thought i would get a good pension at the end of it yeah and it would indeed have been a good pension even right. now if you look at it but because of the the way things were done at the time through the through the actions of the thatcher government and what they did um <clears throat> i found myself being given a new contract of employment with the company but also at the same time kicked out of the pension fund so i had to do something about that and uh, I thought, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to handle this? So I laughingly, laughingly now, I talk about this now laughingly, but I made, I made the devil's covenant with them. The devil's bargain, if you like. Right. The company I worked for uh, was very short of staff because people left in droves following that move. Mm-hmm. And I wanted something i wanted something desperately from my seagoing experience so i said right i said i'll work for you for a year if you give me what i want and they said yeah we'll have some of that so the only thing i want i wanted was was a the endorsement on my on my certificate of competence for diesel engine ships so they sent me away for six months on a motor vessel and I got my motor vessel and I came back and I did, did my examinations. I got my I got my endorsement on my certificate, which was for steam. And that made it a full chief engineer's certificate. Right. Of right. And I also had two dangerous cargo endorsements. And after that, things happened again. But I thought, well, I, I, I've achieved that. I've done that. I've got my combined chiefs. I've got all this and I've got so much else besides. I thought. I thought back to a time when I heard about this chief engineer who was very popular and he left his ship to go on leave 
and he retired at that point. And I went away and I had my leave and I came back and I went back to uh, Japan to join my next vessel. And a year later, that man was dead. Mm. So I thought to myself, just a minute, just a minute, to stop and think. I think that one man's death made me rethink the whole of my life. I thought, well, you can't really, you really need, you, you, you need some other challenge that really gets you, keeps you moving, keeps you working. Because that fellow went from being a very active and very fit gentleman, going home, <clears throat> putting his feet up, getting under his wife's feet, getting, <laughs> getting on her nerves because she had the house exactly the way she wanted it. Yeah, yeah. And he had a good pension at the end of it. He was a chief engineer. He'd, he'd done very well, but he was dead within the year. So what happens after that? Well, his wife only then gets half the pension to which she, she would have been otherwise entitled if her husband had been alive. But she's lost her husband. He, I doubt if he was any more than about 63, 64. Well, no, less than that. I think he, I think he would have retired somewhere mid to late 50s is that a way to go paul no it's not i don't think so no i don't um that's when i i came ashore i packed up there are other things i could tell you about but i'll, I'll leave the funny stories out because that's when my <laughs> satire kicked in on that occasion you, you're making me laugh already because you've just told us that story about someone passing away and then you say you you cut all the, the funny stories out i'm thinking where is this conversation gonna go <laughs> so, david i you know i've got great respect for um chief engineers okay um in the the shipping world or of of engineering because when i worked as a controls engineer i used to go and see lots of uh properties commercial properties in london and i always used to find some of the the owners of the, the facilities manager or the maintenance manager he would be a ex chief engineer now what that guy knew about buildings was unbelievable because you've got that building on water and you're trying, you're, you've got no resources, have you? No. Nope. If something breaks down, you've got to fix that with limited stock, with limited resource. You've got to keep that machine going. And the, right at the beginning of the meeting uh, today, you mentioned the story about the water and how precious water is. Because obviously, I was just about to take some water. And that's interesting to know that we, as normal people, normal engineers, I would say normal engineers compared to you as an engineer, we wouldn't think that. You must have learned so much in them times regarding engineering. I've been told by several people that what I have done and, and what I know is just truly formidable. Mm. But I'm also the same, I'm of that mindset that says to me, that tells me always be open to learning new things yeah <clears throat> always be open to learning so now apart from what apart from what else i do i study ancient history i study ancient language i write as well uh, uh, which you might know about so i've got a collection of short stories plus a lot more besides that i'm working on a much longer book 
and I study specific things that happened in history and I look at I look at how things happened and why they happened. Because my old history master, who died, I think he would have died probably the early part of the century, um, when he took me through history when I was at school, he always, always, always hammered this. He says, always look at why this event or that event was important. What happened here? What happened there? Why is that important? And he always said to us, if you look at any event in history, look at the previous 50 years that were before that one thing you're scrutinizing, one thing you're looking at. And he was absolutely bang on. So the period of history I study that, that he took me through is a period of history from about 1875 to the outbreak of World War II in Europe. The whole of that period of history I still look at, I still read about. And those events, you might realize this, Paul, those, those events are shaping what's happening in the Ukraine there now. Yeah. I still believe they are. Yeah. I believe they are. I don't think there's very much doubt in my mind about that. So I, I have been, I've been categorized as a somewhat pedantic, but curious fellow interested in minor things, which I happen to think are vastly important. Mm -hmm. Water, energy, how we get it, where we get it from, how it comes to us. These are all things that fascinate me totally. I, I totally get it. And I think we're doing so much wrong. Yeah. I do think we can do things a lot better. We're improving. But when you when you hear when you hear stories that I've heard about, for example, the, the ship that I heard about of an hours at sea and they arrived at the Panama Canal with very low water stocks because the desalination plant, which we didn't call desalination plant, we called it the evaporation plant. That's mm -hmm. what it was, was not in a very good way. So they 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 enter the locks at the Panama Canal and, and you go up a staircase of locks, probably about three locks, and you go into this huge freshwater lake called the Gatun Lake. And they said, right, they got in there and they said, right, we'll take all the water out that we've got, we'll put it into one tank, transfer it best we can, and they pumped the water from the lake straight into the tanks that were empty. Right. And that got them out of a hole. Yeah, I can imagine. Because that being a steamship, you've got no water there. You, you ain't going anywhere. No. So you were always, always, always keeping an eye on, A, how much water you were using in the steam plant, which was a critical factor. Mm -hmm. And you're also looking at how much water you were using on the, on the domestic side. Yeah. How much water you're using to cook, to feed, to drink. And what was the balance? Like. What was the balance of that? The comparison between the two? Uh, if you if you got away with using if you got away with using eight tons, when I say tons, I mean old imperial tons. Mm -hmm. uh, if you got away with using eight tons of water a day, you were fortunate. Well, and that's 
was that for domestic or for both? That was for both. Right. So, so, uh, so if you water consumption, if you water consumption for for your domestic consumption and for the steam plant consumption, if you can get that down to eight tons a day, so you have eight watches in a day <clears throat> of four hours each. Um, oh, what did I say? No, eight watches. No, the six six watches in a day, six four twenty four. That's right. So if you used if you use say two tons of water in a watch, and a watch was four hours long, then if you just think about that one, six watches. But yeah, if, if you could get your water consumption down to eight tons per day, both domestic and steam plant consumption, you, you, you were happy, because then you could shut down one of your two desalination plants, leave that standing, and you. You ran on the other one, and that supplied everything you needed. Mm -hmm. If you're in a situation where you had to run both desalination plants flat out to make up your losses, you were not in a good place. No. So you had to become like an energy manager on site, on the boat itself, or ship, we should say. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and and what, what year was this, David? Uh, uh Right the way through from 1973 to 1988. Right. 1988. So I packed up in 1988. So the concept of energy management and saving, in this case, water, and, yeah. and did that work for the same for the likes of energy as well, your fuel and like diesel, et cetera? And did that work for electricity, charging, et cetera? How, how did you manage that? Good question. That's that, that, that's a very good question. If I can, if I can take you back to the first oil crisis of 1973, and I have a very personal memory of that one because uh, we were somewhere up in the North Pacific, being thrown about in the middle of a typhoon that was burning itself out, and I, I was. I came out of my cabin and my cabin was just around the back from the chief engineer's quarters where, where he lived. And I came around the corner to walk past his cabin and he came out of his cabin, met me in the alleyway and he said, David, he said, he said come in, come in. He said, I've had a telex. <clears throat> I've had a telex about something. I'll let you read it, see what you think. I want your ideas. <laughs> so, so we sat down into the cabin and he said, care for a beer? I said, yeah, no problem. You show up with the telex. And the way things rolled out <clears throat> was that when the oil crisis actually hit and the oil prices that then went through the roof, then the company's attitude was, oh, prices of fuel are just going to go, ch -ch 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 -ch. Mm. Uh, uh, which they did. The telex essentially said, <clears throat> um, uh, monitor all your stocks of water, lubricating oil, fuel oil, or whatever. Don't sail around the world with partially empty, partially empty fuel tanks. Bunk as and where you can, when you can. At the moment, we aren't concerned about price. Turn off electrical equipment that's not in use. All this sort of thing, you know. Now, to you and I, that might sound like a lot of sense. Yeah. But I came to this little section in the telex, and I read this, and I said to the chief. I said, hang on, Chief. So we can't go off. So we can't turn electric motors off. Um, he said, why do you think that? I said, I said, if you turn them off, I said, the reason they keep running is because 
while they're running, they get hot and they keep warm. I said, if we turn them off, the damp gets in, you turn them on again, bang, because the insulation value in the motor will drop through the floor, you've got a burnt out motor. Mm. He said, you know, he said, I thought about that and I think you're right. So electricity really on, on a vessel, the, the sort of vessel we were sailing on, not much of a problem on a cruise liner, different water consumption on a cruise liner also is <clears throat> crucial the lights of a qe2 the lights of a modern cruise liner floating about these days that's nothing more than one great huge floating hotel is it paul yeah yeah and your water consumption is just through the roof but if you go on to <laughs> if you go for a cruise and you're told you're told by somebody a floor walker on the in the cabin who says, oh, you can only wash a certain number of times a day, you can only have a shower a certain number of times a day, they can only flush that toilet in your cabin so many number, number of times a day. Are you going to sail with them again? No, you're not. You're not there to be told how much water you can use. Mm. So the accent, what I worked for this company, was on fuel consumption for the propulsion of the vessel. Yeah. And I can give you a comparison. I can give you a comparison because the first ships I sailed on <clears throat> were about 18,000 ton dead weight. And they were burning between 50 and 55 tons per day of fuel. Yeah, roughly. To keep that thing moving at that charter speed, you were burning anything between 45 to 55 tons per day of fuel. In 1987, <clears throat> I joined my first motor vessel, which I mentioned before. This thing was was 150,000 tons dead weight. So you've gone from that to that. Yeah. But because it was a motor ship and because that motor, that that plant was configured in a certain way, the fuel consumption was no more than 50 tons per day. The reason it was the reason they had got that was because they had lowered the charter speed. <clears throat> it was a it was a motor plant the the motor vessel has got a, a much lower specific fuel consumption than a steamship and the other thing that we did was we used waste heat from the main engine to 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 give us electric power yeah and we also used the waste heat from the main engine to make us fresh water i was reading recently um regarding the ships long term becoming electrified what's your um what's your thoughts on that do you think we see that is it possible i don't think so <clears throat> um i don't think so it's a big um, ask isn't it uh the the, the reason i my mind's working overtime, Paul, as I'm, as I'm thinking about that. The, the reason I say that, and I have, a, I, have a, a, I have an illustration here, which I can show you later on. The reason I say that is because when ships are designed to do this job, that job, uh, uh, whatever it might be, <clears throat> there is an allocation for the, the, the power 
and the propulsion machinery. Once, once, that, once that allocation starts increasing and moving into the cargo carrying space, that ship ceases to be economical. Oh, yeah. So if you yeah. think about the batteries that will be needed <clears throat> yeah. to, to, to power that vessel. And yeah. the solar, and the solar possibly. That would you'd use solar to charge the batteries, maybe. Hopefully, yeah. But, but you you would need to get you would need to get that <clears throat> you would need to get that that, that 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 facility for storing the energy within a certain percentage of the internal ship volume. Yeah. To make that viable, and I think we're a long way from that. Yeah. I think we're a long way from that. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. If, so, yeah. So, sure. David. I'm interested. So you've you've gone through your na do we say naval your, your naval period where you've worked as a chief engineer. When did you, when did you make your transition? Because I know you as slightly something different. Did you transition from that? Yeah, <clears throat> I never made it to to chief. I was I was being considered for promotion, but at that time, that's when I made that life changing that that life changing decision. Right. Because I realised that if I if I let that go on, if I let that go on so long, um, probably a lot of employees in this country would think more than twice about employing a person of that age. Mm -hmm. So when I packed up that life, when I packed up doing that, I was about thirty six, right, roughly. Um, so really, for for uh, for employment ashore, that sort of thing. I, I was still, I was still a half decent prospect. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I tried working for industry, working in in industry, but I found that the way people work in industry and the way I thought, I've been trained and brought to, to to think a certain way. And if you were to cut me open with a surgeon's knife and look at my spine, you'd find the name of my company all the way up it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A yeah. bit like Blackpool Rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Your, your thought, your trained, you are brought up to, to think in a certain way. Yeah, it's installed <clears throat> in you, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, but I did do some interesting stuff, and I went on the road selling for a company based in Harrogate, and that's when I realised that my people handling skills were actually quite limited. You know, you think you know it all, but can you go into a place and just cold call on somebody and make a sale? Mm. Very few people can do that. But I what did you, learn how to. What was you selling, David? Um, there was a company in in Harrogate, and they were making they were making all sorts of systems and all sorts of materials and all sorts of products for for the conversation. Sorry, conservation of engineering equipment and assets and buildings and structure right again it was all about conservation yeah, yeah. keeping something going repairing something keeping it working keeping it active keeping it earning you money doing a repair on that building that would enable you to let that stand for a little bit longer it was all mm -hmm. about energy again it was all about conserving assets yeah doing something that would stop the ravages of production the ravages of weather from from destroying what was earning you the money to, to pay the wages of your workers who people work for you. Yeah. 
so the 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 company was called Belzona, and they they were a very fast moving, um, very very high tech company, and one of those companies that has got to keep moving, developing new products to to keep moving and not stand still. Mm. So they were doing research in all sorts of areas, doing doing all sorts of things. And they made and they developed a beautiful product for repairing flat roofs on buildings. And it was the first membrane roof system. Right. And that earned them a fortune. Right. So it, this product was made for solving the flat roof problem. Flat roofs are cheap. Pitched roofs on houses with tiles on. We see them all over the place. Yeah. That costs money, but the flat roof, oh, you stick a flat roof on, mate, you know, that'll be all right. But yeah. as you know, in a roof structure, in the weather, hot and the cold, the roof moves. Yeah. Expansion and contraction. If you've got sunshine all the time, if you've got rain all the time, not a problem. We have both. And that causes roofs to move. Yeah. The membrane actually when you put the membrane on the roof that membrane moved with the roof tiny 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 fractions of a of an inch but it moved sufficiently when it had cured to allow that surface to move absolute wizard of a product but i worked for them for about a year um wasn't selling so i moved out of that <laughs> but i learned a lot yeah, I learned yeah, a lot yeah. about people yeah learning learning how to get on with people and you've seen it paul you've done it you go into a place and you 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 have got to put yourself in that man's shoes for a while to try and see things where from his point of view my dad always said to me he said if a man asks you to walk a mile with him then go with him too yeah learn how to do that yeah and I did, and th those lessons I haven't forgotten. And it's a lot of people might think, "Oh, David, don't be so bloody stupid." But it's the art of being humble, the art of being able to listen to what somebody tells you, the art of being able to listen to what somebody does. And somebody in that business said to me, "Is that if you can leave a person in a better frame of mind?" than the one he was in when you met him, he won't forget you. Mm. Very good point. So, so if you could, yeah. Go on. So there we sure, was. There he was, David on the road. He was in the ship, in the water, and is now on the road. Yeah. <laughs> where where did that take you? Well, I went to, <clears throat> I left Bells on. I went into industry for a while, and I found myself working for a, for a plastics recycling company they they've gone now so uh, you move from Belzona conservation of assets and equipment and machinery into plastics recycling what <laughs> uh, uh, what year was this David 1989 yeah 1989 right I'm, I'm intrigued that we was recycling at, at this time yeah. leading edge initiatives um, I think 
let me let me think about this now because the, the recycling industry probably probably had started and it was realized and i stand to be corrected here <clears throat> it, it was realized that of of all the things that we make and produce as a society or, or, or whatever plastic appears to be the most in the the easiest thing you can recycle but it isn't no it isn't we don't seem to be making it an easy job do we no and because of the because of the volatile nature the the volatile nature of the of the plastic scrap market it's a difficult industry to get into and survive in right because your prices of plastic per tonne which is scrap which goes on the market and it gets sold and bought by compounders plastics people that make plastic products that the price is up and down like this mm. if you imagine the FTSE and what that's been doing over the past year or so you've got price fluctuations in plastics and that you've got to be watching them like a hawk throughout the week yeah and you can have a you can have a plastic grade which is essentially recycled plastic so it's been used it's been through one use and it could be up there one minute and down the next so you've got to get the time just right when you can buy that when you think yeah i'll have some of that and i can make that from it get that out out the door flog it yeah and make money on it but it was realized at the time as well car batteries there was a huge amount of scrap that was being generated through the the these these the scrapping of car batteries right this car battery plastic as it was is about as close to virgin grade as you can get right and that's why battery scrap was so valuable but even that price is up and down like that yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 and while i was working either for belzona or for this company i went to a car battery recycling plant okay and they were making money hand over fist and they were still active in 1988 89 but they've been wiped out the factory's gone now right it is now it is now big business yeah and my partner uh sandy she she used to be a uh, health and safety auditor mm -hmm. working for a company that was doing recycling and waste management waste handling the waste handling and waste waste industry in this country around the world is just astronomical there's there's money everywhere in what's moving around the world in in what you and i might call waste but but to somebody else is thinking wow i'll have some of that i can use that and we're getting we are getting smarter at it. We're getting smarter at how we how we reuse resources, how we reuse products that once 30, 40 years ago, you just chuck it away. Yeah. You are aware, aren't you, that in this country where we are fast running out of landfill? Yeah. I can I've got a landfill near me and I can see the mountain building on a regular basis. Yeah. And it's quite nerving really because there once wasn't a mountain 
<laughs> we are now going up and up and up. And I posted some pictures of it recently. It's, I was shocked the other day and I, I look back and I see this, where's that come from? And it's, you can see where it's slowly building up. So the landfill is now becoming a mound, a landfill man, mound as such. It's quite scary, isn't it? So you know what they will do with that when it's no longer usable? Um, well, we've got a place around the corner from here. That we're, they've turned it into a, a park. Mm-hmm. Is that what they do to it? Or, or is there something else? Oh, um, a park, certainly, or a local amenity where you can take your kids or whatever, this sort of thing, landscape it. Terrific. Great. But yeah. before that, they put a membrane over the top. Right. So they put a membrane, they put a membrane over that entire cap of waste. Yeah. And from that, they can pull methane out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they'll do. Right. And what do they do with the methane? Excuse my ignorance. The methane, the methane will then go to a, you could actually inject that into, into the national grid. Uh, using something called a GEP or a GEP. Now, GEP simply means grid entry point. Right. That's the language that they use. And you can, using a, using a gas compressor, you can you can inject that gas direct into the grid. Right. And that will blend in with it? Yes. Because it's right. methane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because our gas system is just about, hum- it's just about pure methane. It wasn't always like that, but it is now. Mm-hmm. It might not be in the future, but um, the other thing that, that that can be done with that, and this is also happening at um, now waste recycling, uh, sewage sewage handling plant. Yeah, yeah. They are extracting the methane from the from the sewage that gets pumped into a gas bubble. From that. <clears throat> They use that to run a couple of engines. Yeah. Which are diesel engines running on gas. Yeah. I've seen what that. that then, yeah. What that then does, it that powers the entire utility, which takes it off the national grid. Yeah. So this and is they can, and they could spill, waste. They could actually spill that into the grid, couldn't they? And and provide yes. a, yeah. some form of export as such. That's right. So yeah. you've got You've got the the methane, which is technically a waste product, but very valuable, very usable. Put that back into the grid. The same thing you can do with a biodigester as well. Or you can use the the methane direct to or use a methane in diesel engines. So, David, why are we not seeing some more of that? Have you got a theory on why we don't, like, for instance, Yes, I, I've got a landfill that I can see in the distance to where I live. Mm-hmm. There's no, I can see there's no methane being generated there because sometimes you get the flame, don't you? That's right. Um, yes. We used to have a flame, but that used to be for another, that's another story. Mm-hmm. That's another plant, but that's all closed down now. Um, yep. So why are we not seeing more of this generation? What, what's stopping us from taking advantage of this? I think we're seeing more and more and more of uh, these things called energy from waste plants. And they are growing in number. So because of the landfill 
diminishing in Britain, which it is, come the day in the future, there will be no more landfill left. Yeah. And uh, my partner said, she said as much, a landfill site, the likes of which is growing near you, over a period of 20 years, that has to be managed because it will leach out waste products. Yeah. They've got to be monitored, looked at, measured. They have to put in, they have to put in mitigating measures to curb it. But the energy from waste industry is growing. There are more energy from waste plants, which are generating power, which is going to the grid, yeah. burning waste that we produce. Uh, there are more and more biodigesters being built. If I can just give an indication of something about what's happening. Um, I used to drive an awful lot on the M62, mm -hmm. which is between Liverpool and Hull. And there were three power stations on that motorway. There was, if you're driving east, you would hit you would hit Eggborough first, then you would then you would come to Ferry Bridge, then the next one you would see further back on the horizon was Drax. Right. And Drax was the last coal-fired power station that we built in this country, I believe. Yeah, and the biggest. Yes, it was. Yeah. And I've been inside it. It is just it's funny i was invited to go up there um yeah. a couple of years ago but i didn't get there yeah i would have loved to have gone gone there oh i've shown around the plant it's just like oh what you know so think about the boilers i sailed with their toys compared to what they've got over there <laughs> so if you look at what's happened now eggborough power station's been flattened that's gone yeah ferry bridge is gone um yes but Yes, it has done. It was re recently, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Because um, my partner and I were up there recently, and I thought, where, where are those cooling towers gone? Yeah. And they've been, you know, taken down. But there are now two huge energy from waste plants there. Right. They're absolutely massive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Drax is not what it used to be, but I think there's a mix of things going on there. And they're also, I think they're using biomass. Right. Um, but because of the size of the site, it, it's probably, that's probably going to be a, if you like, a research power station to see what works. Yeah. Because of the size of it. When Drax was, was working, they were using the, the heat from the cooling towers that condensed the steam to pump through greenhouses. Right. There was a huge tomato farm up there. Okay. And they, and they're using it to grow tomatoes. That's good. Yeah, I like I like it when we're we're utilizing the all the efficiencies from from power. It's uh, very key, yeah. and it's interesting. Yeah. So oh, I don't know what year it was, but I went to Tilbury Power Station, right, which is no longer there. But they were mixing coal and biomass to right. bring their renewables down. Uh, yeah, their to add to their renewable obligations mm -hmm. um, as a as a percentage yeah. um, during that time, but mm. that's obviously closed down now. Yeah, where I live, so I live on the Thames, and I can see the power stations, the Kings North and Grain. And one morning, <laughs> we knew they would stop running, and they started to decommission, etc. And um, I used to look out my window every morning, could see. Uh, Kings, Kings North Power Station from my window. 
And um, I had this meeting. It was right near King's North Power Station. I thought, oh, it's interesting. I'm going to look at the chimney when I come out. And then we're in this meeting and there's all this excitement. And they said, oh, it's down. And I said, what's down? They blew the chimney up that day and I didn't even know about it. <laughs> and we went out and it wasn't there. <laughs> the biggest landmark out of my window and throughout the, the whole of that coast went. It was, and you know, the, the community complained when it went up, apparently, this power station. When it was built, they hated it. But they had more complaints when they blew it up and pulled it down because it would become a landmark, you know. Yes. Yeah. Um, crazy times. Crazy times. Well, it- <clears throat> So, David, look, I'm really conscious that we've, we've, we've talked about some really key interesting things here for our audience. Right. Um, it, you've totally um, curveballed me, as, as I would normally say, because... I thought we were going to talk more about education and, and your training. Let's get into that. Let's talk about what you, you know, for me, you're, you've been given back. Tell us, tell us about your, um, your students regarding instructing and, and teaching. I, I, I got into the FE system in about 2004, 2005, uh, <clears throat> because I've, I've been made redundant. Um, I, I was an engineering inspector for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. So that took me on the road that, that was inspecting power plant machinery and all this sort of thing. And I moved into, I, I moved into FE and I've been in and out of that ever since. Uh, <clears throat> but since that time, I'll leave out the early years, but I, I specialized, I began to specialize in three areas, all, all electrical, all fascinating. There was electrical installation, power distribution, uh, electrical engineering and electronics right i didn't i was going to ask you i, I presumed you was more mechanical what what is your background is it mechanical and both. electrical both. both yeah right that's that's quite unique because, a, because the company i worked for was the only fleet that used their 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 engineers to do both activities in the engine room right Nearly every other company, in fact, I would say every other company, they employed an electrician from ashore to come and do that for them. Yeah. And when I was at the end of my days with the oil company I worked for for all those years, who put me through that apprenticeship, I finally learned why they did that. You'll find this interesting because I was in this huge room on the Isle of Man. in this hotel and we were all sat there great big room like that presentation team down here captains chief engineers second engineers chief officers all down there like that and there's me with that lot and somebody asked the question why did this company decide to have one of their engineers learn how to and work within electrical systems on the ships that we operate and one of the presentations team began talking he said it's quite simple gentlemen he said we couldn't have an electrician from ashore coming onto one of our ships and talking to the chief engineer in a language that the chief engineer couldn't understand 
Good point. Yeah. And I just sat back and I just went, got it. Mm. I met a number of people who had been ele electrical engineers at sea and they knew they could run circles around the chief and get him, get that man right where they wanted him. Mm. In other words, I don't run, you don't run this show, pal, I do. Yeah, yeah. He said, yeah. we couldn't have, we, we, this man said, we couldn't have somebody on the ship talking a language nobody else understood. Yeah. And that's how and why I got into it. So I was familiar with three-phase systems right from my very earliest days. I just grew comfortable with it. Right. You know, there are sparkies out there who are doing installation work and they think and they believe that three-phase electricity is a black art because they don't know how it works. Mm. They've never seen it, never worked with it. They have never been with or worked with three-phase systems, yet some of them are delivering apprenticeships and working in college, and they're talking about a, a system, talking about a, an industry, they're talking about an engineering discipline that they don't understand and don't know about, but they're trying to teach kids how to do it. Yeah. Now, does that strike you as slightly odd? Slightly, yeah. More than slightly. Yeah. Do so you find what, it slightly? Yeah. What sort of subjects were you teaching when you was um, doing your college, etc.? I was doing well, of course, <laughs> health and safety. Oh, <laughs> and then doing the science work as well. The 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 the, the science bit. Then the the uh, teaching these lads how to actually complete and design an, an electrical installation. Right. So you take them through all that lot. You take them through all the theory. And then you teach them how to how to understand the legislation that goes with it, so they can navigate all the all the obstacles they need to they need to know. And I'd be the first person to sit here, Paul, and say to you that I learned, and I'm still learning a lot about not just this industry, that industry, but but a lot about myself, uh, how you how you communicate with people how you empathize with people. I've had my confrontations. I've had my, I've had my ups and downs in this lot. And I've tried to, I've tried to knock a few heads together. Sometimes it's worked, sometimes it hasn't. Mm. But I have a, we, you and I both know that in this country, we've got a dire skill shortage, which we are not addressing. We're nowhere near addressing it. And some of the best apprentices I've worked with, Paul, have been young women. Right. That's interesting. Young women. Mm. They take they take one look at that lot and say, I'm having some of that. I've had quite a few ladies on my um, podcast and someone commented to me the other day and said that he finds that when I'm into interviewing the female uh, expert, that there's more passion there. There's more, you know, more need for driving the energy management story and the expert side of it. Yep. Um, I'm not putting the pressure on you now, but that's what he was saying. Um, and I, I get that. The students I work with, um, 
they they they're all passionate, you know, regarding energy management, and I get that more from the the lady than than the man. One little story here about an encounter I had when I was an engineering inspector. The the old term for that was engineer surveyor. So I got sent up to a place in the north of England, and it was um, it was a it was a, a facility owned by Northwest Water, was it Northeast Water? And these water water companies they they hold bulk chlorine in various sites for the for the chlorination of the water. So the chlorine tanks that they use are they're huge great big cylindrical tanks and they have to be inspected mm. every five years or so which means emptying them making them gas free safe for entry then someone like me went along crawled around them looked at them making notes in his notebook this sort of thing looking at the internal condition the external condition checking all the fittings checking all the fixtures asking a few questions you go away but and out of that comes a report. Right. I turn up at this facility where they've got these two chlorine tanks. There's a little one as well, which they want me to go into. And there were two young women in there who, who were the engineers on site. And I was intrigued, fascinated, completely absorbed by the fact that when they worked together, their desks faced each other. And I thought, have you ever seen two men work like that? No. And I just thought, very rarely. Mm. So I walked in and I said, I said, oh, good morning, ladies. How are you? I said, oh, hello, David. Pleased to meet you. I'd like some tea or coffee or whatever. I said, yes, yeah, Dad. Yeah, here's a chair. And I watched these two. And it was like two minds working as one. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Mm. They were just sat there looking at things and asking me a few questions and then talking together like that. And then, they, uh, Dave, what do you think about that? And I'd come in and say, yes, yeah, okay. These two were just bouncing things off each other. Mm. And I was aware of this enormously powerful intelligence that was comprised of these two individuals and they were producing something that was greater than some of their parts yeah it was like one plus one equals three or four instead of two they just worked so well together and i have never seen that since so interesting interesting um lady engineers people like that passionate about conservation oh yeah let's have it yeah, exactly. Because I do think we need to do we do need to do things differently. I do totally agree. Do. So, David, it's been awesome listening to you, and I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> How can I put you on the spot? You know, you you're not you rise to everything. I'm sure. So, I'm going to put you on the spot now, though, and I'm going to say to you, it's come to that time where um, is there anything that you can give back to the industry from your vast experience um, for our audience today as a takeaway. I've got two little exhibits I'd like to show you. Right. How are we going to get that audible, though? No. One's a book. Ah, 
Okay, go on in. Let's see how it goes. The Waste Makers. Okay, tell us about that. This is an absolutely seminal text. So, <clears throat> my father bought this in 1961. And it's written by a fellow called Vance Packard. Now, Vance Packard was an American writer, but he he cottoned on to what was happening in America. So he wrote this book, I think, it's a first edition. So first published 1961. So he's writing at the end of a period of American history when he realizes that America alone probably needs three Earths to sustain it. Right. And he's the first one to realize and write about the waste that's been generated, which is profligate. It's almost criminal. Yeah. And I have a second device as well, which I, I want to show you. So what year was that written, that book? 1971, did you say? 60, my, my father bought this 61. Oh, sorry, was, 61. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And that was published the previous year. Right. But what what Vance Packard in his story with his and I hate I, I hate reading from um, from text, but he tells a story about how the the American industrial machine, which kicked into overdrive in the during World War Two, couldn't be stopped, and they had to keep producing and making things. Right, and this is what led to the World War II saw some pretty phenomenal industrial developments. I think you'd agree with that. Yeah, totally. And he talks totally. about how this lot and these processes and these materials and these inventions found their way into the American way of life. But it also generated a huge amount of waste as well. And I've just been looking through here today before you and I met online. And I'm still reading little bits in here and I'm thinking, Wow, that, that's just incredible. Yeah, He's yeah. talking about things here that are pertinent to us now. Yeah. So I would say to your listeners, your readers, to read that book. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's an absolute must. Because he talks about things here that, that are relevant to us now. Hmm. The other thing I have is this. Oh, so that's a TV valve, isn't it? This is. I'm showing my age bit. now. So, so, for the, <laughs> so for the benefit of this, our audience today, listening to yeah. audio, David's just showed yeah. an old valve that used to sit inside a TV, I believe. He's something gonna, very like it. Okay. Yeah, something very, very, very like that. This is a little bit more specialized. There's a label on it. <clears throat> There's a label on it. I can tell you all about this thing. And this is straight from the BBC, from their engineering stores. Wow. And this was, this was made by a company used to operate not far from you, Paul. The company was called AC Cossel. Uh, are they in Chelmsford? There might have been. Yeah. They might have been, but these people were they were at the forefront of radar development in World War Two. Marconi. Yeah. 
So this is, all this thing does is rectify a um, power supply. Right. It's just called a fermionic diode. Yeah, yeah. That's all it is. N nothing more fancy than that. But if you can just imagine this thing here and what we can do now on little silicon chips. And you can get 50 of them on your finger, on your yeah. fingernail. Yeah, yeah, We've yeah. gone from that in, I know how old this is. This is, this is probably about 1950. Wow. Still have works. Have you got lots of these little gadgets around? I got probably two or three of these, but I I sold stacks of them at an auction. <laughs> They've just taken up so much space. Yeah, but, yeah. But even now, I find these things just totally fascinating. Yeah. If you like, I get my white coat, and you can you can take me as a mad scientist. <laughs> <laughs> David, it's crazy because. I'm going to tell the audience how we met. Okay, so yeah. I, in my early posting days in 2019, I and two, it may have been more early 2020. I think I posted about nuclear power. I was put, putting stories out there. The only person I got, I get loads of people saying, "Oh, that's really good. You're doing good work." One person used to always challenge me, and that person used to be David, and. <laughs> I would spend hours answering because I, again, for the benefit of the audience, it's me that answers everything. Okay. And so David had put an essay on my comments. I'd have to give back. He was relentless, everything. And in the end, I had to phone him up and we had to have a conversation and talk about it. And luckily, he calmed down after a while because he, he didn't put so many essays on my um i think he got bored with me but um yeah he's an amazing person for knowledge as you can see from today's podcast he's exceeded the time yeah which is great so yeah. what was it uh, sorry uh, you've you've thrown me a little bit now what was the story regarding this technology the valve what's the, this one yeah so what are we giving back there Something looking very much like that <clears throat> was developed in <clears throat> was developed in World War One, right? And it was called the Audion, um, and it was a thermionic valve looking very much like that, but it was used it, it was used in radios and home radios, which were developed in World War One. So the during World War One and World War Two, there were huge, huge advances in technology. And this one thing, this Audion valve, this one comes much later. So, so the Audion valve is a valve used in an amplifier that can amplify a signal, was brand new then in its infancy. People just starting to get used to the idea of listening to a radio broadcast in their front rooms at home. Right, but the the whole the whole lot the whole the whole monument the whole monumental construction of Western technology and commerce 
just came crashing down, as you know, in 1929, because there was a surplus of everything. Right. Back to and this point. was just one tiny part of it. Right. And I could probably talk to you for hours about something called the entropy law. But I don't know. Maybe that's another time. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But 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 I've always, always, always had at the back of my mind this thing called the entropy law in everything I do and everything I think about. And sometimes sometimes I don't always follow it, but I think, hang on a minute. But one simple example, um, <clears throat> a little while ago, I, I, we had to move a shed. <laughs> move a shed. And I, we realized we had to have a concrete base for it. That means pouring concrete. I don't like concrete, but to pour the concrete, I had to make a wooden shuttering for it, a frame, if you like, to pour the concrete into. Paul, when I bought the wood for that shuttering, it worked out at 40 pound a cubic foot. That's a lot of money. That's astronomical. Mm. A lot of money. Just for shuttering. Just for shuttering. Mm. So I thought, well, I, I can't just scrap this wood after taking the shuttering away. So what I now do is, if I got stuff like that, that gets put to one side and reused for something else. Mm. I do something else with it. I might do something with that. Yeah. But if you want me to say something to your audience, what I would say is read that book. It's it's absolutely monumental in scope, content. The mind of this man is just just incredible. And also consider that we are getting smarter at using things better. We are getting smarter at using energy better. But we have to also understand what this thing is that I've just called entropy. What it actually is. And <clears throat> that essentially says <clears throat> that there's no such thing as renewable energy. The first law of thermodynamics says energy can only be changed into one form or another, but it can't be created or destroyed. If you start using the term renewable energy, you think about energy being created and you are you, you are creating it. Yeah, the second law of thermodynamics says that in a closed system or a universe, that the the entropy in that universe uh the energy of that universe is a constant but the entropy is also increasing which means to say that all the energy in that universe in that system is being turned into entropy entropy increases and you can't get it back it's like a bank you can put money into that bank but you but you can't draw money from it you can't draw the energy back from it energy that we use today <clears throat> The way we use energy now, from the source of energy that we use, it probably goes through one or two conversions. And after that, it's useless. We've lost mm. it. Disappears, yeah. It, th that goes into that bank that we call the entropy bank, and we can't get that back. But at the same time, look all around the world. We are learning how to use what's in this world, what's, what's on this earth, for energy. 
we're, we're learning how to do it. I think that the way things are going, we've got this incredible system called the National Grid for gas. I think eventually what's going to happen is that will that will that will turn into not a methane grid but a hydrogen grid. Yeah. Now, if you're going back to when you and I were younger, we had something called town gas. Yeah. Which was a mix of gases. That gas system now is all just about all methane. But you've got that system in place. It's all there. But I think eventually we'll move to hydrogen. The hydrogen grid. How do we get hydrogen? Electrolysis. Where does the electrolysis, where does the energy for that come from? Well, how about solar PV? Yeah. So is there a possibility that every home in the country, maybe, just maybe, having with with solar panels on the roof, will be electrolyzing water to, to produce hydrogen? to put into the grid? Is that possible? That's what some people are talking about. Yeah. I think we're a long way off got, from that. I think we're a long way off from that. We are. We are. We, we, we're a long way from that. But I think that's, I think that's coming. If you, if you think back to our, our earliest conversations, and I mentioned to, to you those two ships that used to tie up at Canary Island, yeah. So I was on those. I worked on them. Mm. Um, <clears throat> when when they began carrying gas from North Africa, from a terminal in Algiers, the original contract was 20 years duration. Shortly after those ships entered service, <clears throat> one in 63 and one in 64, or round about that time, shortly after that point in time, North Sea gas was found off Great Yarmouth. Yeah. And those two ships were in service by that time. The promise then, when that gas was discovered, that we would have a gas reserve for how many years? Untold numbers of years. Mm. And what's happened to that gas reserve? Disappeared. I guess it is probably just about all used up. Mm. So, our problem in this country is a keeping the country going and b having something called security of supply yeah yeah good point and this is something people forget oh you can do that you can do that you can do that you can put this in you can put that there you can do that so can you be certain can you be certain that that supply is secure mr packard mentions that in his book right in 1960. It just, it, it just, it, in 1960, he was saying that then. Wow. Be careful who you team up with. Right. <laughs> David, thank you very much for today. It's been a real pleasure. We, we, I've got some ideas. I'm going to talk to you offline about them shortly. But um, I'd like to thank you for your time today. Very, very valuable. Um, I'm praying that someone's going to pick up on some of those great words and wisdom you've given us today. So I'm definitely going to go and research that book. Um, and I'm urge my, my listeners to do that as well. So thank you very much, David. Today, Paul, Paul, It's been great. Great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, please Paul. you and your family stay safe in these times. Oh, damn right. We will. <laughs>
Take care, Paul. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.